Hello and welcome to Artbox. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I travel up to Baltimore, Maryland to Neil Feather's studio. Neil is an artist, experimental musician, sculptor, and instrument maker. Neil likes to experiment, but without having to do the math. He's like an Amish mad scientist. We talk about how he got his start on this path and some of the instruments he makes. We also talk about the Red Room Collective and about his philosophy of art and music. The music that you hear in the background is Neil's instruments. So with that, sit back and relax and enjoy the interview. Once again, I, I value your time, and I thank you for showing us some of your instruments uh, beforehand. would like to jump right into uh, the interview here and just ask you your kind of origin story. How did you get your start making and playing uh, your, your instruments and, and your music? Uh, well, let's see. The music started when I was quite young, very interested in music. Um, and then somewhere along, I guess, sixth grade started having problems with authority. And a lot of that involved like music teachers and involuntary instrument lessons and stuff like that. So I guess I was 14 and, uh, so my friends, we used to go to the library and, you know, like I was swapping records. So one week, I've, there was a stack of records that contained uh, John Cage's Music for Radio, Harry Parch's Delusion of Fury, including the full-color booklet with pictures of all his instruments, and uh, Captain Beefheart's Spotlight Kit. So that, like, blew my mind. That was like, oh, God, thank Yes, music is a big thing. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the cat was out of the bag or the lid was off the can or what, you know, whatever, you know, it, it, it like became huge, you know, to the point now where music is bigger than everything cosmologically. So anyway, so, uh, doing that. And then we just discussed a trout mask replica, which came in pretty quick, you know, like yeah. those, it's one those of my top three five. really, uh, did it. And then. Uh, at that time, I started, um, so I just started making musical instruments right after that. Do, do you remember what your first instrument was? Uh, we had this band. We had this car band called uh, Tanadro Oxford NF Geige, which just happened to be a flag that was lying around in the car. It was a car band. So uh, there was, it was very blues-oriented, and there was a harmonica and two friends that played hand whistles, uh, virtuosos on, on the hands, at least until they grew out of it. Um, <clears throat> and I played orange, grapefruit, and alarm clock were sort of the first ones. And then there was a um, instrument made out of a Folgers coffee can uh, that was a just had a string to the bottom of the coffee can and a bead on the end that I would hold in my mouth. And then I'd sort of pluck it and hold the pulled the string, um, and that, that was called the Olsen. So 
the the so this was actual fruit. Like, could you use an actual orange to? Yeah, hollowed out a, a fruit and just used it as a trumpet, like a lip buzz kind of instrument. It was all wet and you know, one time use flatty. Yeah, uh, yeah, not did they, they weren't they spoiled. <laughs> Do you, do you have any recordings of this? Uh, your first band? I do. I really? do. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of a. a it was sort of a, a jazz. It, you know, it was. Let's see. I think we did it like a John Mayall cover, and you know, it was pretty bluesy. I mean, back then, this was in Western Pennsylvania. In I guess it was 1972 or so. Some of us had our driver's licenses at that <laughs> point, and we drove. We sort of just formed the band, and then. Um, and then we stopped down at the, the 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 FM the new FM radio station, and we we went on the radio and, and played. And wow! Well, the the guys who did the hands what hand whistles they had been down there before to do the you know the national anthem when the you know at the end of the night with doing the hand whistles doing the national doing the anthem. hand so they knew those guys so we just stopped in and. I mean, you literally yeah. just stop by and say, hey, uh, we got a band. Yeah, we got a band. Can we play some music? And they were cool with that. Wow. Uh, yeah. This well, this is the early days of FM radio. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. No, this was, yeah, no one had heard. <laughs> yeah, this was the, the beginning days of alternative radio. Yeah. And it was, a, and it's a small town, too. I mean, so was there any kind of uh, uh, fallout that people will start signing you guys up to play for their parties and uh well we played around you know we played around but you know i grew up in western pennsylvania and like if you weren't 21 yeah if if you didn't you know you couldn't go to bars so you would just go to places and and this was back you know this is you know out in the sticks people just played music i mean that's what you did You'd, you'd go you'd go to the dam you know or you'd find some place off a dirt road you know, it was that kind of that kind of party scene? You just go to someone's house, or you go, you know, find a spot and bring out the instruments and play around the campfire and stuff like that. So, how long was your first band um, uh, around? Oh, that I, I mean, it was around. It was around for, uh, you know, a couple of years, and then other people, you know, some people had other had other bands. You know, we had a bluegrass band too. Some of the people from that band ended up becoming musicians, but most of them, you know, had, had, you know, more legitimate, purposeful things to do. So, so from um, listening to those early albums and then uh, forming this first band, at what point, how, how did you just realize that you had to up your game in, in making your own instruments? So that, I mean, that, you know, we were all in high school yeah. then. And so eventually I went off to, it was time to go to college, but um, you couldn't do that sort of weird music stuff at, at, in school at no. the time. No. You know, there were, I mean, there were a couple of, uh, you know, at the time there were a couple of colleges in the country where they were doing experimental music, but it was still very, you know, very serious. And, uh, you know, there, there weren't like sound art programs or anything like that. Yeah. Unlike today. So I ended up, so I was also, uh, so I ended up going to Penn state for ceramics because that was also something that I was you passionate know, about. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I really like, I really like working in clay. So, uh, and you know, art school was a little more open-ended. 
Yeah, I could agree with that. Yeah, yeah. particularly in in like in in ceramics was quite open ended because you had your potters and stuff, but it it wasn't. Um, you know where I went to school at Penn State and and then subsequently in uh, Montana, it was kind of an anything goes. They weren't deathly serious. In fact, I'd have to go to the painting department, you know, to talk philosophy and stuff like that. You know, they were just like, well, let's just make something, you know, just do something. Just do, can you do it bigger? Yeah. That sort of thing. And then there was also a lot of, um, you know, mixed media was cool. And so I started doing things uh, using fundamental properties like gravity, balance, weight. So the sculptures started making it, making sounds, <laughs> you know, because yeah. if you, you know, if you're using those kind of forces, they just started making sounds. And so uh, by the time, you know, once I, pretty early on in graduate school, it was like, oh, okay, well, they're going to make sound. Okay, let's build instruments now. And they were, they were pretty cool with that. So my thesis was actually a performance. Oh, wow. You know, I got some help from, you know, from people in the music department and um, I hadn't, I mean, I'd been on stage before, but I'd never done solo work. Oh. And my one professor was like, he just asked me, oh, so when are you going to go on stage? And he was in the ceramics world. At, at the time, ceramics conferences were the big thing. And people would do slideshows. But after a few years, that got kind of dry. So it, so performance art, sort of came up. And so this uh, professor of mine, uh, Ken Little, started doing performances and stuff with it. And so anyway, he, he just kept saying, well, when are you going to do it on stage? You know, and uh, I, I hemmed and hawed for a while. And then finally I did it. I did it in the music department, the Tuesday afternoon recitals. Like there was a French horn player. And then I went on with the, with the Nando and some other things you know uh and i and it was thrilling you know it was like wow you know i got the you know the brain the brain candy that happens when you go on stage it's like oh apparently i like this feeling (laughs) and uh i remember i got off stage and he was there and he was like right (laughs) and i was like yeah you get it it?" you know it's like oh yeah now i now i get it so i ended up you know getting in, getting more and more involved in music and so i had the nando and the contraption which was the the rotozither instrument over there yeah uh those i had made uh the contraption didn't look like that it was it was uh that that's been re rebuilt and redesigned four times since then oh wow uh, there's, there's just a few pieces of it that are from the original one. Hmm. When, when yeah, when, I was gonna say when you made made that piece, you you would play it, and then you would say, you know, this would sound great if I add another pickup over here, or if I try a mallet over there. Well, I think with that, it was it, it was partly it was quite un, ungainly, and in Montana, there's a lot of room in Montana. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of room uh, in the ceramic in the sculpture department. Ceramics department was busy. Sculpture department was as big as the ceramics department, but not busy. So I had lots of room. Yeah. So I had this big, you know, thing made out of rod, and it wasn't electric. You know, and I didn't really. I think at the time I, I didn't really get 
they didn't know so much about sound and how that works. And so I went to, uh, it was a, you know, thrift store salvage yard and I, and I found a, a magnetic pickup. And then I realized that if I moved the pickup around, I could get, you know, I could, I could get, I could tones. get tones and yeah. I, you know, cause otherwise it's just sort of, a yeah. So then when it was time to move away from Montana, I had to like hack the thing apart. <laughs> you know, it was a big ungainly thing and, and put like splints on it. And so I could put it together, but it took like 45 minutes to, you know, to, to put it together. And it yeah. was, a, it was a big thing. So that was the first thing to go is to make it. So at least it was more or less flat. Yeah. So that was to make phase, it travel ready. Two. Yeah, it was phase two. It was still big and, and ungainly, yeah. but you know, but it worked. It was, it was usable, you know, for some of the bigger, you know, the, my credit, you know, for the first few years, my setups were just take me a day to set up. Oh, wow. You know, everything, it was these big, you know, these big objects. And also, I don't know, I just, it was just the more instruments I had, the more comfortable I felt, you know, going into a performance. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel that way today when you go out into perform? No. No? <laughs> Try to go as uh, light and, and fast as possible? Well, I find that, you know, it depends on how much time I have or how many people, you know, or what, what the deal is. Yeah. Um, you know, but if I'm going to play for... You know, I used to go out with like four instruments and, you know, this arsenal of like, well, I do this and I do that. But, you know, because I, I improvise and, you know, the first five minutes are just just getting warmed up. You yeah. Know, I'm just you know, settling into it. And also for the audience, depending, you know, particularly if it's an audience, if it's a new audience, you know, it takes a while just to for the novelty to wear off. So I find that if I go in... You know, if I've got a 25-minute set and I've got four instruments, I'm just doing a demonstration. Mm, I see. You know, I'm not like taking the taking the audience on a journey yeah. with the instruments. I'm just showing them instruments. Yeah. Well, earlier when you were playing them, uh, I, I couldn't help but start to kind of feel like I was in a journey. You know, uh, honestly, but that's just because you know, I'm really uh, attuned to to the sounds and and, mm -hmm. and how. The, the soundscape that you're able to create with them. And, and I, I love that. I love that fact. Because a lot of times, especially with popular music, it's just that sometimes people forget to make a, a soundscape as much as uh, as just a, a music you know composition. I like how you're, you're kind of in that world of, of doing compositions and uh, that you also have a, a soundscape, which i.e. goes into it, you're going into a journey. For myself, I feel like I'm kind of going into more of a, a, a self-reflection of, you know, of what I'm hearing and reacting to it. Way you also give, it allows space as well. The sounds are, uh, give you space. For me, anyway. That's, like, that's just my interpretation. You know, I'm sure mm -hmm. somebody else would have a complete opposite of that. But I, I wanted to ask, so after you got from Montana, how, how did you come over here to the East Coast? Uh, I, I mean, I know you probably drove or walked over here, but... Uh, how, how did you end up I, over I here? I walked. <laughs> it took 15 years. And, well, you know, I was carrying a lot of instruments. I was going to so. say, yeah. Uh, no, actually, um, for, um, I don't know, maybe mediocre personal reasons ended up in Denver. I was thinking East Coast, West Coast, hmm. you know, and well, I'll go to Denver. And Or actually, I went to Boulder. Oh, okay. And, and in Boulder, I realized that I didn't need to be in a college town anymore. You know, I'd been going to school 
for 18 years straight. Yeah. And Boulder wasn't really, it was, it's a fine place. Just wasn't doing it for you. Wasn't doing it for me. And so I ended up moving, uh, moving to Denver. And I, I think I ended, I think it was really good timing because for the five years that I was in Denver, there was, there was a really cool scene going on. So I moved to Denver and immediately I walked across the street to, I lived across the street from Muddy Waters Coffee House. Oh, nice. The second iteration of that um, on 15th Street. And I sat down with some people and, and they were, that was, they were my friends. <laughs> and uh, so they were musicians. So in Denver, I learned how to like, you know, put on a show, you know, how to plug in, how to borrow amps, and yeah. plug them in and, you know, and, and the craft, my stagecraft of, of putting on a show, working with other musicians, more or less kind of how to deal with the egoic aspect of playing on stage, yeah. which, was, which is no light thing. No. You know? I think I'm still, still have issues with that. I probably have more issues with music than I do have issues with being a musician at this point yeah you know and i didn't you know i wasn't didn't necessarily you know coming out of a coming out of art school i mean at the time everybody was coming out of art school yeah you know the talking heads and, uh, uh Devo. Devo. yep you, you, that was just the thing you go to <laughs> you go to art school and then you form a band yeah so you know that's that's how to learn how to how to talk with musicians and, and, and form a band. Yeah. And that was a, a very, very productive, very productive time. So from Denver, then you, did you make any other pit stops along the way to, uh, no, I, I was in Denver for about five years and I, I think some was going on in the Denver scene. I was based at a Mercury Cafe in Denver, which is still there, although it's a different one now. Okay. But that was the center of a, of a scene. And the Pirate Art Gallery was also, you know, the places that uh, I had full access to. But I think I think the I think people were, like, moving out of town. The SNL crisis happened. Mm, and yes. that, that was in Denver. Neil Bush's bank went yep. went belly up. And, uh, or I, I, I think he's okay. <laughs> um but and I, and I remember uh Temple of Psychic Youth moved moved in there and that was a that was a weird that was a weird thing going on I'm not familiar weird, that was a weird thing going on yeah yeah that changed the the tone of the tone of things and I fell in love with someone who coincidentally grew up with me or grew up in Youngstown Ohio 15 miles from where I grew up in Pennsylvania. So like the whole, you know, industrial Northeast was kind of giving you a call. Yeah. It was calling me when I'd been at Penn state, I'd been to Baltimore a few times because there were academic connections there, you know, that traced back to Montana. Yeah. Anyway, I'd been to Baltimore and I was like, well, let's go to Baltimore. Cause, cause of John Waters and, yeah. and you know, talking heads and yeah. Yeah. And it, was, and it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a fucked up steel town. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's like, well, let's let's go there, and so we moved to we moved to uh, Baltimore, and I, I ended up actually, you know, like the John Waters movie. I ended up moving. First place we lived was next door to where Gene Hill lived 
No Gene, way. Gene Hill was yeah was uh, in Female Troubles and Death's Desperate. You know one of yeah. the one of the Waters crew. Yeah. And yeah, so we that's uncanny. Up. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I I played for. I don't think John Waters remembers this at all, but I <laughs> but I played for his 40th birthday party. Oh wow. Yeah, because Gene was like, "Oh, come on, come on down." John's having a birthday. Well, I'll set it up. You you can play. <laughs> And, okay. and so it was like, so anyway, it was like, oh, well, I guess that's, yeah. It, and to this day, I think those early John Waters movies were totally slice of life hmm. in Baltimore, you know, a lot more reality there than, but I think he also established this kind of, you know, this kind of eccentric. Well, this town definitely you know, does have flavor. some, yeah, this it does flavor. have some, some flavor, flavor to it. This Baltimore, yeah. But I think he also sprang from that. He didn't, you know, that flavor he brought it out of Baltimore rather than bringing it to Baltimore. Yeah, I, I could see that. I, I, I would concur with that. So when did the uh, Red Room Collective start? Because you said you were a founding member of that. Mm-hmm. So I moved here in 85 or 86 and, you know, was, was playing music with people. There was sort of a generational change when I showed up. There was the uh, ad hoc fiasco people and there are there are a bunch of folks uh, that I won't try to go into naming it at this point then we did some projects there was a big project called the the official project that I that I founded with uh, tentatively a convenience and that went on for a few years but then the people that I knew started normals books and records there was a, it was a big collective I think there were eight or nine people at the beginning now there's there's four people four owners four oh wow co- four co-owners two of which are still involved no anyway <laughs> uh somatic so uh so John Burnt was one of those people uh well I think the store expanded until we finally took over where there used to be a food co-op so we had this room so then it was time and it was John's idea. John was the was the brainstorm behind this, but he was smart enough to know that you need a team to run a to run a space. So at the time, the fourteen carat cabaret was going. Lord de Gaulle's fourteen carat cabaret, and she had a strong team behind her. That started a few years before the Red Room. Okay. But you know, we were we were playing music, and there is just not a space devoted to. Um, I mean, there were open mics and everything, but there wasn't a space devoted to just sheer weirdness. So uh, John started that. I think there were seven, seven people uh, on the on the original collective. You know, it was like, well, what do, what are we gonna do? You know, that's because there was a circuit. You know, I mean, there at the time there was free music going on, and there were yeah. people. You know, there were people touring. Jack Wright was called on the Johnny Appleseed of of free music because he was just a just touring everywhere you know and and so he he kind of brought it but there were yeah there was a there were tons of people who needed a place to play strange music it was a cool thing because we'd bring people in i mean we can had a place for us to play but we could also uh bring touring people in and because it was a largely improvised music you know we could mix it up and you know have a different band locally every week but also play with people coming through you know and it's like well and so we did it it was all volunteer it is all volunteer to this day musicians get 100 percent of the door which is awesome which is awesome yeah so i i mean and and 
and people would listen. You know, people didn't go to the red room to, you know, to get laid. Yeah. It was mainly like kind of nerdy guys. Yeah. You know, you know that's the, the experimental music world. And, you know, and they, were, they didn't sell drinks. And so a lot of musicians that would even, you know, more successful ones that had a, that had a, you know, would suspend their guarantee. Because we were saying, listen, we'll give you 100% of the door and nobody gets in free. Yeah. You know, people will listen to you. People will pay attention. So that was enough to, you know, to bring people in, you know, to, to, to play. And so there's been an amazing amount of stellar players going through there over the years. So then High Zero Foundation, um, could you go into detail about what that foundation is and how that got started? Well, that uh, the High Zero Foundation is the Red Room. So it point. is the Red Room? It is. Okay. The, this, I mean, just at this point, because of the paperwork and the, <laughs> and the grants and yeah. all that kind of stuff, yeah. I think it's merged. It was the Red Room slash High Zero, I'm pretty sure. Right. I'm, I haven't been uh, an active member. I haven't been part of the collective for 2006, 2007. I so stepped, it's been a minute. Away. Yeah. But yeah, so that's the high zero. So at some point, John decided, you know, we'd, we'd been doing this uh, weekly, more or less weekly series for a couple of years. And it was like, well, it's time to bring it to the people. You know, it's time to take experimental music and just sell it over the counter. Yeah. And invite everybody in. You know, there's no reason why this stuff shouldn't just be popular. <laughs> well, I you know I, it doesn't have the marketing behind it. <laughs> no. The mu- you know, if you had the marketing. But 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 beyond that, if we just acted like this is this is real music and everybody should hear it. So let's have the festival. And it was an amazing structure to bring so the way you know, at the at the get go it was for many years, now it's 24 musicians per festival. Then it was 26, 13 from Baltimore and 13 from around the world. And let's put them together in in groups that uh, ideally have never met before, let alone played together. Yeah. So it was sort of like this, okay, go. Go, just see what happens. Let's see what happens. So, uh, in fact, I think the high zero, the, the idea of the name for high zero was sort of like, Kind of like high noon, yeah. like a duel in the street, you know. Um, and but with the zero being, I don't know that that was sort of a motif in a lot of John's conceptual, um, you know, conceptual. Okay, thing, so you know, with that sort of question, starting from scratch. So anyway. is is zero a number? My question to you is zero a number? Oh, I think so. Okay. Yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a linchpin of a number. It's a very linchpin of a number. I I agree. So. Yeah, so we did that and started the form, and it's gone. It's it's gone through a lot of forms. The first couple of years were, were were a little rough. Well, you're just trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. So so we did that, and I was participated in and was a stage manager for about the first for about the first seven years. Ooh, yeah. No, that was. And That's I, a re- I remember that because the first two years we had it in four different venues. Oh goodness. Oh, so you were the stage Two manager for all? Two different venues in oh. one day. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> oh man. But I, th- I, you know, I think it's grown into this amazing form. You know, everybody had different ideas. I, I feel like there's some pretty good ideas that I made them do. You know, <laughs> convinced. Um, you know, and and I dropped out because I think, I mean, I think in my 
career, I'm no stranger to crisis of faith, <laughs> you know, where you go, well, what, what's all this for? And I, and I yeah. think at some point I did, I mean, you gotta be a zealot, you know, to, to go to meetings every week or every two weeks and to spend your time for free producing shows for other people and not your own, you know, not your own. Are, are you, are you talking about me? Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it, it, well, no, no. I understand yeah, exactly yeah. what you're talking yeah, about. If yeah. you're doing it out of the sense of obligation, then no, I'm in it for the wrong love. reasons. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, it's got a, I mean, that's love. It is. I yeah. mean, this is the reason why I do this. I, I love yeah. doing this and I love talking yeah. to artists. It's, it's so. got to come from like, you know, like, like that or like food or yeah. <laughs> whatever you're doing, you got to, and I think I had some, you know, there were some things outside of the collective in my life that were getting kind of complicated and taking taking a lot of energy. Sorry, I had to write the mental dessert that yep. uh, if I ever renamed the show, I should call it that, actually. You're, you've been talking about John, John Bennett here. So John Byrne. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, sorry, John. I mispronounced your name. So you've been working with him for a while and you two uh, started a collaboration together and it was called Thus. Yeah, thus, and that happened. God, I forget when the official project. He was also part of the the official project was a was a large was a big band, and it had a game structure to it that was very elaborate. And John was part of that. And when the official project closed, John and I started working together. And for I don't know five ten years. Oh wow! You know, we had a night of the week. We had a night of the week that was sort of default. We're gonna play. Right. Or work on music. Right, right. Or, Roll up your shirt sleeves, let's go. Or something. Or, or watch movies or, you know, just, and so, so that was thus. And it primarily revolved around experimental musical instruments uh, of my design uh, and of John's design and a few other people, I think, for a while. He had uh, some instruments. I forget what the name of the instruments was, but it was by uh, Quavis Reed Gizala. So it was all very strange instrumentation. So the uh, people would come in and out of the project as as time went on with the well, project? Well, with us, it was always just the two of us. It was just, oh, yeah, okay, I understand. Duet. Okay. It was yeah. just the two of you guys. So so uh, with that being said, are you kind of in any projects that uh, you're working on right now? Many projects. Okay. Let's see, the one, the one right now, actually, I've been editing down thus, I'm doing the final sequencing for a, a double LP box set. Oh, wow. And it's actually fashioned, I mentioned earlier, uh, the Harry Parch's Delusion of the Fury. Yeah. That had, the Delusion of the Fury was two LPs, and then there was a third LP that had, uh, that went along with this color booklet that was um, just solo cuts of each instrument and Uncle Harry describing the instrument. And, you know, uh, his voice is amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, th I think Harry Parch was definitely my, of those three people, he was definitely my example. So anyway, so I'm doing a, a, a double LP and it's going to have a color booklet on it and the idea i believe the name that is sticking is instrumentary hmm. or a place where you have lots of instruments and it's all duets so one two sides are going to be uh we did a we did a bunch of sessions at the red room and i just invited people in to do duets and so that's going to be two sides or let's see shall i name names that's um, up to you yeah. um Eric Franklin, who's been in a bunch of my bands, uh, Kristen Tedman, 
Susan Alcorn, Stu Mostovsky, Rupert Wondolowski, and Rupert and I actually are starting a, a we've, we've had a couple of gigs and that's a new band that I'm starting. Rupert was one of the first people I met in Baltimore. Oh, wow. We hadn't played music together in 30 years. We'd lived together for a couple of years and, yeah. and all that. He's more of a, he's a poet primarily and, you know, a singer songwriter um, kind of thing. But we've done a couple of gigs and that is a really fun band. It's very silly. He sings and I play former guitar. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking to fill it out with some, I might add another instrument. Anyway, so he's on that. Let's see. Sam Burt, Rose Hammer Burt. So that, that is in the, that's the, the folk on those sides and then another side is various projects uh and the duets with uh rosie langabeer who is my favorite person to play with hmm. also my wife at this point <laughs> and and she's amazing that album includes some of it was recorded here a couple of cuts were recorded in at macy's in philadelphia using a uh, Mighty Wurlitzer theater organ. Nice. Thanks to the friends of the Wanamaker. We, we didn't get to play the Wanamaker organ, um, but they had, they had a nicely restored theater organ there. And that's a very um, idiom-defined um, <laughs> piece. And then the, the last side on that is uh, primarily thus. And so I've been going back through the remastering it the remastering yeah. you know we put out three or four records and you know probably have four or five more records in the can that never, oh, that never made it out so i mean we recorded a lot those of have to come out they have to see sunlight yeah well you know we got them just give me a ring give me a <laughs> ring we're ready for, we got we got we got uh recordings galore from that, from that stuff <laughs> So um, going back to some of the instruments that you have made, what was the influence, uh, your process in making the, uh, like your former guitar or former guitars, I should say, because you have more than just one. Mm. Well, I guess the Nando is the basis of a lot of the, that was the first instrument. Yeah, let's, this, let's, yeah, well, let's talk body, about the Nando. Yeah. Of this body of instruments. The, the notion behind the, behind the Nando is that there's kind of an equilibrium built into it. Yeah. Okay, so the the body isn't rigid. The, so the, the weight of the body is stretching the strings rather than a rigid structure. And so when you like press down one corner that, you know, that if I press down the left corner, the left string will get higher right. and the right string will get looser. Starts changing pitch and tone, right. and, yeah. and and so there, so the weight is equally distributed. And then when you use the bar to roll up and down the strings, you're dividing the strings, but you always have both sides of the strings. Right. Okay. And so the reason that they're called former guitars is because the third guitar, I tried to take some of those principles and and use the guitar so that I could carry it around, and also I could look cool <laughs> like i always thought you know guitars were the ergonomics yeah yeah of guitar it just never appealed to me to say nothing of the 12 tone system so so the way that the former guitars work is that there's two strings that are stretched against each other 
so you so one gets tighter and one gets looser mm -hmm. and then there's a the the bridge in the middle which you know on the fourth or fifth guitar those became figured out how to make those move up and down so you could adjust them and then there's pickups on both sides of the string so all of those principles came directly from the nondo wow so i think the the original former guitar the former guitar <laughs> was uh cost me five bucks and i think that that's why i was able to succeed you know, a $30 guitar, man, I, you know, it was, yeah. I can't cut that up. <laughs> um, so, you know, so that, so when I find it, it was like no longer a guitar. So that's how it got the name, the form of guitar. And so that was the family of instruments called the form of guitar, but there were only three of them, I think, that started out as guitars. I see. So the other <laughs> form of guitars were basically, um, better lack of words here, of like former uh, or used to be former things, like a cigar box as an example. Well, then, they 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 were they were guitars. And yeah. so the first one was a, like a silver tone. Okay, okay. That, you know, thinking back was probably the most, you know, in retrospect, the most collectible <laughs> of them all. Although I think they're, they might some. Anyway, and then I built another one called the Bendy Guitar. And John Burnt owns that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, the first one, I, I was getting sassy because <laughs> this was like the 80s and New yeah. Wave, you know, yeah. like that whole thing. So I took a, like a pie slice out of it and I, and I put a saw, circular saw blade in there, you know, <laughs> nice. to, to make it real, yeah. real tough. But in doing so, I used a carriage bolt to hold the, the saw blade in. And then it turned out that that made this bridge. And hmm. so if I, and if I whittled, if I carved some ridges in that, I could take the string and I could bow it, you know, on the thing. Yeah. And so the next time around, the next one I made, it's like, oh, well, I like, that's good. I should get like a, a real, I should make that happen. Yeah. For real. I think on that one, I'm not sure. I forget whether, whether there's pickups on both sides of that bridge. But then definitely the next one after that, it was, you know, pick up on both sides of the bridge. And then the, after that one, then I got it so that you could move the bridge up and down. Right. And by that time, I, that, by that time I was also working, I was working in a museum. So I had a full shop. Or access to one. I had access to a full shop and, you know, materials and stuff. So I didn't have to like start out with a guitar. You know, I just had to have pickups and, and stuff like that. So, so then the the form started to, but I was working at a children's museum. So the ones that I made after that were, were unbreakable. <laughs> they were, yeah, they, they were very, they were completely overbuilt. So it sounds like you were influenced by your environment at that point. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Well, I was just building and no, you know, the, just that, you know, I was, everything was overbuilt. Yeah. So yeah, with those guitars, the guitains is what they were called. Yeah. If I was on an instrument fight, I would win. I mean, you could just, you could knock down a building <laughs> and they would still play. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then, uh, you know, the one, the, the little one, at, yeah, the one at is a certain point was like, okay, I, I, I want to make a guitar that's a lot lighter and it doesn't have French curves all, you know, like that's. 
Let's just make something that's that's simpler and easier to make. Yeah. And so that design has kind of stuck around and stuck right. Yeah, I've been honing in on it. Trying to invent the new re- uh, rectangle. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I you kind of already touched on this, but uh, so a lot of these instruments are kind of like a, a series of things. So you know, like it's just what you talked about with the the former guitars, you know, that was a series, and uh, the Roto Zether is another kind of family or series of instruments as well. Yeah. C- could you talk a little bit about? Yeah, I think those? of them as as instrument families. Okay. Some of them might just keep making more and more of. <laughs> uh, the Roto Zethers are so complicated that I just tend to rebuild them because they got so many parts to them so the contraption which was also made in montana around 1979 80 you know the original idea was uh like if i misunderstood how a music box works Hmm. you know that it was sort of like you mean like the kind that opens up and you're ding 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 yeah yeah yeah, with times and stuff like if i didn't understand so that that was the beginning of that so the contraption was was sort of ungainly so there's two different types of rotozithers. There's cylindrical rotozithers okay. where the strings are parallel around a tube. And then there is the radial rotozithers. Um, and they're made from, the first one was made from um, an exercise bicycle. <laughs> the strings went from the hub to the rim and then various, you know, you'd pedal it and there were various pluckers and then different pickups in various spots. So. Uh, you know, a lot of um, those instruments in particular, but a lot of the instruments have a lot to do with, with engines. I'm a bit of a motorhead. I rode a motorcycle most of my life. I'm, I'm you know, from the time I was 13 to... Uh, Two hours ago? Just, uh, just <laughs> well, till about seven or eight years ago, um, I had a motorcycle. And so just, and the sound of motorcycles and engines, like hit or miss engines, I, I love I love those I won't go into what a hit or miss engine is. Yeah, well, but maybe the later. Sound of, the sound of them is like a wonderful thing because it's not regular. Yeah. Or just environmentally. If I hear a, an engine that's missing a little bit, yeah. you know, and so it's got this syncopation going. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, so that's sort of, so uh, a lot of, so there's a lot of rotary motion in that, in the rotozithers, but also in, in you know, the bills And so that was the, the beginning of that. And, the the ball bouncing on the on the string that's compulsory to be a roto zither. It's, it's got to do that in some form. I don't mm-hmm. think any of them do as nicely as the contraption. As the one that you the contraption does. Yeah, but that's almost the hardest part of building a building a roto zither. So yeah, I did one on a stationary bike, again quite ungainly, <laughs> and if you sat on it for like ten minutes, your your genitals would go numb. <laughs> so so that required a redesign yeah that that would have to and definitely then, be a, um, a redesign on that yeah. so then john and i got invited to san francisco alternative music festival so i decided to build one that could fit into a suitcase and that one was called the Melosipede. so that worked and that that's an operating operating instrument it's in a suitcase it's around here somewhere it's yeah it's in its case so yeah so that was a rotozither there's a rotozither there was an instrument called the the vegas Hmm. which was part former guitar part rotozither and part vibra wheel and it was actually the first vibra wheel 
Well, why would, did you call it Vegas? It was just the Vegas. Well, because it was like a three ring circus. Oh, it was like a big show. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Right? Yeah, it was yeah. like a big. It was like a big show. Okay. Gotcha. And, um, and again, it was sort of like, okay, I wanna, I wanna have a lot of stuff to do when I go out and play for people. Yeah. Which is, you know, particularly in that was in the thick of of bedroom, you know. So I was constantly just going to places and not knowing what situation. So there was a lot of stuff there. The vibro wheel was, you know, I'd, I'd acquired a bunch of uh, 16 millimeter movie projectors, which have inside of them these flywheels. Yeah. With really nice bearings. Right. So uh, I'm just kind of curious. So you use the film projectors just because of the smooth bearing operation? I, I was just curious. Well, I'd about take that. the flywheels out of them. I actually I felt see. pretty bad about, <laughs> about doing that. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd try and. But you did it for art, though. It's okay. There's. A few machines from the 20th century that I just think are cool. Yeah. Movie projectors. And I've taken apart a lot of them, but I've never taken a movie projector completely apart. Well, if there's a will, there's a way, my friend. They're, 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 it's not an easy manufacture. <laughs> You know, like just, just there's, I don't know how, you know, I haven't. Yeah. I mean, full, full disclosure, that. I haven't yeah. taken one apart, but I'm assuming they're pretty hardy machines. They yeah, have they're hardy. Yeah. yeah. They're hard. And, but idiosyncratic, ah. you know, they've got to be, ten, uh, same with sewing machines. Oh yes. Uh, that I can. Yeah. Sewing machines. Marvel. I mean, changed the world, you know, oh, yeah. one of the most important machines in, in, in the world need to be adjusted properly, but just a masterpiece. Yeah. Know? No, it is actually uh, yeah. a pretty engineering feat. Yeah. So I've just taken the flywheel and the, and the bearing because you can spin on it. You know, most people think that the vibro wheels are motorized. Yeah. No, I, I'm assuming they're not. Yeah. No, it's just a, it's just a, uh, but the thing that I like about them is that, so if you give them a good, good hand spin, they'll go for a couple of minutes gradually slowing down yeah and it's that gradual slowing down that i find really interesting yeah particularly up against like if you put it through a tremolo unit you know it you'll get all the rhythms if you have something that gradually slows down and you put it up against a grid you get all the rhythms you know because you get the syncopation and they'll just change and that, that phasing so that's another thing another foundational concept for my music is long phase relationship. Yeah, I, when I first came in here and you were showing me uh, uh, this piece over here, I started to talk and you kind of just like politely put your finger up. It's like, it's not done yet. Let, let it finish. And then, then we, we started talking. Oh, yeah. That you had a point. It's like, let it, let it finish its talking before. Uh, <laughs> best, yeah, yeah, sh- yeah, yeah, this is the best part. And, and that's when I, I instantly realized that you were right. It, you, the very end is probably the most important part or one of the most important yeah, parts. Yeah, because it's different every time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so... Long phase relationships, but also a little bit of chaos. You know, I had this idea of the ghost in the machine, which I misunderstood sort of the intent of, yeah. of what that originally meant. But you had your own definition of it. I had my own. Yeah, I conceptualized that when I heard the phrase. It's like, oh, well, those are machines that are old. I that, can see that. That are, you know, that have changed over time. So much so that they that they become individuals, they become idiosyncratic, and there's a certain ghost by virtue of of time and I don't know molecules changing into other molecules in individual ways. So so they become slightly more unpredictable. Yeah. Okay. They act differently from their 
you know, they're brood. <laughs> you know, to me, that's that's what the the ghost in the machine was. And so even though that's, you know, not what that actually means. Well, right, a collective definition, right. But this was your definition but this of was, that. But, yeah. but still that idea of swing. Yeah. And, and when I went, uh, sort of formative experiences that I went to, the House on the Rock. Okay. In, in Wisconsin. This is uh, back in 1990, I think, early 90s, I went there. And they have all these automated orchestras. It's an, it's an amazing place. I haven't been there for a long time. I suspect it's different. I'm sure it's different, yeah, if it's still you around. Know, I, I would like to think it's as well-maintained as it was when I was there. But, you know, so there's these machines that are that are doing all these, you know, that are playing instruments and stuff. But I'm fascinated by music machines sort of through their inaccuracy because their physicality yeah. and their, their execution, you know, they have something, something else going on. Hmm. I see. Okay. Like I start out with a lot of concepts like, Oh, I want to make a machine that does this. And they're, they're part machines and they're part just physics experiments, <laughs> you know, what but, would you call yourself a mad scientist? Uh, yeah, kind of. You know, one one uh, tagline is, you know, I'm an Amish mad scientist. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because that's sort of my level of. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I like that. I might start calling you the Amish mad scientist. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, you know, it, it's part of the sloppy execution, you know, but I'm also went to art schools. Well, I mentioned my, my dad was a, was an engineer. He's an electrical engineer. Yeah, I and, could see that and, influence. And so I admire that about him, and I am grateful for whatever he passed on to me, either genetically or just... Or by osmosis. Yeah, by osmosis. But I don't like doing math. <laughs> you know, fair so, enough, fair enough. Yeah, so, so a lot of these things is experiments where I just bypass the math and, and listen and get to hear what it sounds like. So it's sort of like direct a sonification of data. Yeah, no, I follow you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not bad. I just thought no. that, yeah, it's sort of, yeah. So yeah, never mind the math and just listen to how that experiment works out. So I guess it would be true to say then that you're an Amish mad scientist. Yeah, I don't think well, the Amish, Amish would, I don't think the Amish would say that. No, they, they actually probably Although my math, people yeah. are, are from... Oh, your your like I'm, origin story. I'm, they're from uh, generations back. Yeah, generations back. My a lot of a lot of my, you know, yeah. Speaking of that, it seems like we're starting to touch into one of my little favorite areas. Is um, uh, how does your philosophy and your aesthetics work into your art? I I don't think you can parse the aesthetics from the from the art, but the philosophy. Well, I'd say philosophically, I'm I'm a uh, I, I find great comfort in the laws of thermodynamics. You know, whether or not that's the ultimate truth. But I believe in physical reality, you know, like mm -hmm. I don't deny the flesh. Uh, you know, all of this may be an illusion or Maya or something. It might but be. That's not that's not the game I'm playing. <laughs> you know? Like I kind of think that this is it. Mm-hmm. And, and I enjoy things that are measurable. You know, the material world, I, I think, is beautiful. Yeah, tangible. It's tangible. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I love it. I'm, I'm, 
there was a there was a, a, a stuffy music book that I when I was in graduate school, Cohen was his name, and it, uh, what was the name of the book? Emotion and meaning in music. And it was I'm my, writing that down. And it was my time. antithesis. It was this book about how music works. Yeah, and you know what the rules are, but why why music works, and and he had a brief discussion of John Cage. And he called John Cage a radical empiricist. Wow. And that's what, and I, and I think that's amazing. Yeah. And that's what I like about Cage is that he didn't equivocate. He did an experiment. He outlined the experiment and then created you listen to it. Yeah. You know, and when you listen to Cage, you just can't like, you have to listen to it and see how that makes you feel. You know, whatever it was Goldberg very It's not the Goldberg variations. Um, some of the very, you know, I, like the, the yeah. you know, Ching tape games. That he yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't just listen to the first couple of them and go, yeah, okay, I know what that. I know. You know I get it. I, yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah, okay, you did that. <laughs> you know, you got to listen to the whole thing, and then either derive meaning from it, or happily not derive meaning from it. You know, well, then that makes me want to go back to what I talked about just a moment ago about how, you know, you kind of wanted to have the piece finish. You want to listen to it all the way through. You know, you wanted to have it sonic decay happen. You wanted to hear all of that all the way through. Because like you said just a second ago, it's never going to be the same sound again. Mm -hmm. And and that's definitely why it's important to to listen to it. And I just pass. I was like, oh, I get it. You know, you have to listen to it all the way through. Yeah. Come on, it's the butterfly effect. It is, yeah. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, it's the initial conditions, and then and then it ends up different every time, you know? Definitely. And I don't even have to go and, like, kill a dinosaur. You know? <laughs> like, it's just this Which, nice little manageable three-minute, you know, butterfly effect. You know, just, just cosmolo- cosmologically, you know, thermodynamics of, like, well, you know, it's just, you know, we had this. I mean, if you want to get my cosmological thing, in fact, I... um. I wrote an opera a couple of years ago called the, called the Music Myth. The Music Myth. Myth. And it was how music, not that music is a myth and it's all a, you know, it's not a muckraking, you know. I think there's a lot of lying involved in music. <laughs> but yeah, I, but I think we'll not, have to, uh, yeah, we well, can talk about the, the, yeah. those issues. I can come back and we can talk about issues that. issues with how music is used. But this was about how, music started everything and and sort of it sort of took music predated everything like it started time so in this in this mythological kind of thing music was this creature that was just a head with big ears that it would fly around in the in the pre in the pre-existence would it use its ears to fly to fly okay and navigated with its nose okay and and it was just sort of bumbling around and accidentally created the big bang <laughs> which was when which was the unison the singularity when everything happened at once which is why i don't necessarily feel compelled to have everything happen at once yeah you know? so everything happened at once and then phased out it phased out of unison and you know because everything's vibrating and Mm -hmm. everything but everything's vibrating at a different speed 
So at one point it all started on one. <laughs> and then I don't think of music as like the music industry or, or, or let me say, I enjoy thinking of where everything happens. But it sounds like you're kind of going on a metaphysical music. And right. I'm not, you know, like a couple of years ago, I did the journey through the cosmos mm -hmm. and it was all about, and, and it was all about this tension of, you know, I was, I'm a 20th century kind of guy. So I grew up in like this sort of clockwork universe kind of, kind of thing, you mm -hmm. know, you, you know, you have your orreries and everything sort of goes around and it's more or less on a plane, you know, and there's a lot of integers involved, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, uh, low common denominators yeah. and stuff like that. But once again, um, the math thing, right? You know, yeah. and, and then, and then as we move into this century, you know, post Einsteinian kind of stuff. It's like, no, it doesn't all add up to one. And, it's, and we're still just, we're in the midst of this great explosion, you know, and everything is expanding. And eventually we'll just be a, a cold beige mist. <laughs> well, well, that's... you know, at the end of, thir you know, that's where therm thermodynamics is, is heading us. Yeah. You know, to think of, you know, that the, the ultimate destination being a cold beige mist. I love it. <laughs> you know you embrace like, it yeah. yeah no that's like i'm it's very comforting and music is is sort of like what holds everything together like know, glue. whether it's harmonically or mm -hmm. or not you know it's yeah it's kind of the glue it's the it is the relationship of all the vibrations which everything vibrates so you know that's sort of my that's sort of the big idea of music you know, and then there's many different, you know, like more particular. Yeah, a little subgenre of it. Yeah. But but I guess in in and in, in bringing it around to music that we listen to and we intend, you know, music that's made by musicians, I still would like the category of music to be as large as possible. I'm not going to disagree with that. So that's that's my. I guess that's how the philosophy ties in with music. Yeah, and and in and, and just in a, in a small little nutshell. <laughs> I took the long way around. Right. But that's fine. Um, I, I like the, yeah. the long route because you see more stuff. Yeah. So um, so I kind of wanted to wrap up the interview with, uh, and I told you this earlier, and it's one of my favorite ones, and it's not a gotcha question, but uh, it, it sometimes will get you. Oh, yeah, I forgot this question. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to your past self and to other artists? Well, this is something, and I, and I think recently, I, I don't think I'm the first one to have this sentiment, but do stuff that nobody else is doing. You know, I, I sort of think of, of culturally, it's kind of hard to, I yeah. mean, you know, music and art and cu culture in general is, is full of fashion. Yeah. You know, there's movements and there's, you know, that's all great. I don't think of music as a language, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, there's certain things. When I was in Montana, I, I learned how to play the saxophone because I missed jazz. There wasn't a lot of jazz going on up there. Mm, I could see and that. I, and yeah. I missed it. So, so that was the, the, the only instrument I think I've ever played by choice hmm. um, or learned by choice. Right, right, right. And I came to Baltimore and, and I still was kind of a bad sax player. And I saw Jack Wright play. I thought, oh, he's got that covered. You know, it's like anything I'm going to, 
anything I would do with the saxophone. He's got it already, already covered. I'm going to go over here and do something that, that nobody else is doing. You know, I kind of, I kind of think of like culture as like a, as like a boat. And if everybody's running to one side of the boat, you need some people on the other side just to kind of keep the boat balanced, keep, keep it balanced. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, w- I would say, yeah, just, you know, do figure out what it is you, you, you should do. Yeah. But yeah, primarily do something that's, that's you can do. Do something different. Yeah. Yeah. Do something that you're going to do that, that no one else is going to do. Yeah. I, I always uh, say that. Just for uh, me. Right. No, I'm easily bored. <laughs> Well, I say also do it no matter what, if anyone's watching or not, you know? Yeah. Because if you like doing it, just, you should just do it. Yeah. I mean, not to sound like a commercial, but yeah. that's true. Yeah. Well, I'm a little more, <laughs> I'm a little more ambivalent. You know, I was giving <laughs> advice to young people, you know, it, it's sort of like advice, the same advice that I would give when people want to ride a motorcycle, ride a motorcycle if you have to. If you, if to be happy, you know, if yeah. like, if it's something you got to do, yeah, ride a motorcycle. If you don't got to ride a motorcycle, stay off those things. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. So I guess a music career is sort of like that. It's like, <laughs> if you got to do it, I mean, you know, um, um, oh, Kurt Vonnegut, mm. you know, who is, one of the two most quotable people in the world. Oh yeah. You know, and he said, and his advice to people was do art, you know, do something creative because that's, that's the most important thing. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Well, thank you, sir, for doing the interview. I appreciate that. And, um, thank you for having me. I hope, I hope, um, I hope that whoever's, watching this or listening to this finds it a good use of time well i they better because i did and i thank you for doing that all right all right i want to say thank you to neil for taking his time for doing the interview if you want to learn more information about neil you can go to his website at neilfeather.com You can go to Artbox's website at artboxdnv.com or you can go to our Instagram page at artboxdnv. To hear the full episode and past episodes, you can go to our website or you can go to Mixcloud at mixcloud.com backslash artboxinthednv. Until next time, thank you for listening.